In this episode of Real World Serverless, I interviewed Daniel Wright and Sarah Gerion at The Zone, which is a sports streaming platform that you can think of as the Netflix of sports. Given the massive scale that The Zone operates at, with over 1.2 million concurrent viewers at peak and a desire to have a very high uptime because the contents are streamed live and viewers would hate to miss out on those all-important moments in sporting history. So The Zone faces some pretty unique technical challenges and we talked about the different ways it's using serverless technologies today, often side-by-side with containers running in ECS. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with uh, real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by two of my former colleagues at The Zone, Sarah Gerion and uh, Daniel Wright. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, Jan. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So we worked together at The Zone for a little while. For people that are not familiar with The Zone, maybe they're not big sports fans, can you maybe just quickly introduce yourselves and talk about who The Zone is? Uh, what do you guys do? All right, maybe I can start. So The Zone, for those who are not familiar with, is a global platform that streams sport events. We are known around as Netflix of sport, and it's basically a platform that streams content in real time and on demand, related to sport, of course. Um, One of the greatest challenges that we have is to be able to sustain spikes of traffic, going from low traffic to hundreds of thousands of concurrent users signing up, signing in, or streaming the event itself. Yeah, I guess I can introduce myself first. Um, so my name is Daniel Wright. I'm a principal backend engineer at Dazon, based in our Amsterdam office. Um, and I'm in a kind of technical leadership, servant leadership style role, uh, looking at cross-team issues. And yeah, as Sara said, Dazon OTT streaming platform, currently in about nine different markets. But we've just recently announced that we're going to be going global soon. So yeah, we really going to be working in lots of countries, uh, lots of customers, uh, lots of different sports content, and yeah, a lot of it's in real time. So that's where a lot of our challenges come in. And yeah, and myself, I'm a backend engineer. I was lucky enough to work with Daniel for a period we work in the same team. I joined Azone more, a bit more than a year ago. And as a backend engineer, I contribute to the design, the development and deployment and monitoring of the microservices that power the Azone core functional logic and operations. Yeah, the thing that's really stood out for me when I was working at Zone was the sheer scale of the application that we were building and the fact that we also need to have a very high uptime as well because we have billions of dollars of contract rights uh, riding on you being able to deliver the content to the millions of people watching those sporting events live. Given that sort of background, that context of the high scale, high reliability, uh, how is the Zone using serverless? To give a brief answer, yeah, across Dazon, there's been a really wide adoption of various bits of AWS serverless technology. So uh, heavy users of Lambda functions, API gateways, Dynamo databases, SQS, SNS, S3, Kinesis, you name it, we're probably using it somewhere. And yeah, in our office, our particular domain focuses mostly on uh, payments, subscriptions, and user management. So it might be creating an API using Lambda and API Gateway to allow users to create accounts, for example, or to provide payment details, to redeem gift codes, to change their account details, any kinds of uh, user subscription, user payment, user management style backend systems. Yeah, there's been 
I would say, a serverless by default mindset going into to solving these problems. Um, and yeah, we use serverless for a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, in general, we try our first approach is to try to keep it simple. And serverless in that case serves well. If we can build something with a Lambda or any other service that fits the requirement, serverless service, normally we will go for it. And yeah, as Daniel already said, mostly we use Lambda a lot, DynamoDB, API Gateway, SNS, SQS. It's really our bread, I would say. Can you give some examples of uh, systems that you've built recently using some of these serverless technologies? Yes, an example would be a REST API application that is a simple microservice that is behind an API gateway and uh, a network load balancer and a uh, ECS. So in that case, API gateway was the entry point of the microservice or another service is a queuing service. So a short polar that would be integrated with an SQS that would be as well integrated with SNS. So listening to uh, publish events and uh, make sure that we process that event and uh, do some computing, interacting with other services or yeah, that's it. That actually highlights an other interesting point about how the zone is using AWS in general, that it's not just about serverless, it's not just API gateway and Lambda everywhere. There's such a quite good combination, a good mix of CCS containers with Lambda. And uh, yeah, that's definitely out of necessity. Can you talk about some of the decision points in terms of how do you decide which service should you be running on ECS versus uh, running on Lambda? That is a very good question. And um, I think when people talk about serverless, they think that in the cloud, we, we mostly see examples that uh, uses only serverless or mostly serverless, but I think in reality, most of the like services that we ship in the cloud are hybrids. So you use serverless when it makes sense. And sometimes it's not always the only solution that can be applied. Uh, as an example for HTTP application, we sometimes choose ECS because of some scaling requirements. In the zone, we have some huge traffic at spikes and not always is the case that Lambda satisfies the requirements that we have in that sense or for queuing systems, sometimes we need to perform long running computing operations. So again, maybe ECS, it's an easier choice or a faster choice to implement. Or um, in general, we will go for a different solutions if the requirements just don't meet the hard requirements or limitation that the serverless solution has. Uh, but maybe Daniel, you have something to say about it. Yeah, like you say, I think there are some particular scenarios where you just cannot use Lambda. Um, so if you have a task that's going to run longer than 15 minutes, it might make more sense to put it into a container or EC2 or just somewhere else. Now, I, I guess you, you could chop it up and uh, often you could use uh, Lambda functions in some kind of step function um, if you may be processing a file, for example. Um, but the, the, there's some complexity involved in that. And I think often there's been a preference to just move it into a, into a container instead. Um, and then, like you said, around traffic and scaling, I think, yeah, we do have a, a global audience. And if you're thinking about sport events, live events, maybe users are trying to sign up for, or sign in, um, maybe, you know, five minutes to kick off, sign in is, is going through the roof. How quickly could Lambda deal with that? And could 
you know the soft limits around uh, concurrent execution support our use case. So uh, yeah, I think there are lots of uh, kind of things to consider. You know, what is the maximum required throughput? Will our concurrent execution limit allow for that? And also, how quickly will our, our burst happen? You know, will the initial burst uh, that were given by by AWS be enough to be able to handle the increase in, in, in customers coming in, or do we need to to consider you know, scaling up in advance or having something that can scale a little bit faster. So to fill in some context for audience who are not familiar with uh, some of the limits that we're talking about here, the total concurrency limit is a soft limit and that can be raised with a support ticket, but there's a second limit. So once you hit the regional burst capacity, uh, which in most regions is about 3,000 concurrent executions, after which point you can only increase the number of concurrent executions by up to 500 per minute. This is a hard limit, and this is the reasons why Daniel and Sarah is talking about for some of these front-facing workloads where the traffic is going to go through the, the roof very, very quickly as you have people that's trying to log into the system about 10 seconds before the match starts. When I was at the zone, we were looking at some of the data reports on the traffic, and it was literally going from about 200 users to 1.2 million within a 30-second window. So like, think about the concurrency you need for that kind of spike which on Lambda is just really hard to do. That is until reInvent last year when they announced the provision concurrency, which is kind of your way to get around that limit. But as Daniel mentioned, sometimes the actual complexity involved with using some of these tools just makes serverless not worthwhile and just easier to go containers. And I think in this particular case, given that you can just say, okay, we know when the traffic is going to come, so we're just going to change our auto-scaling group setting to bump up the number of containers a minute before the match starts so we have enough capacity when the people do start to sign in. And using this approach is actually much easier compared to trying to work around some of the scaling limitations around Lambda with provision concurrency. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it, it's really reassuring as somebody thinking with an operational mindset to have a button you can press to just say, scale up, you know, go as, as high as you need to. And yeah, I, I guess if you're going with a Lambda approach, a lot of that is is controlled by AWS, right? You don't have a button that just says, rescue me, scale up. And I think that's something really, really reassuring to have. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, in some cases, you do need to have the extra control that containers and ECS gives you, whereas with Lambda, it being a black box, you just don't have as much control around some of these scaling behaviors. But I do want to also keep talking a little bit about this mix of containers and serverless, uh, because this is, again, something you see a lot with larger companies, whereas with some of the smaller companies, everyone's going fully serverless. But the zone still has this serverless-first mindset, and since you guys work with both containers and serverless on a day-to-day -day basis, can you maybe just compare and contrast the two and paint the picture of why does this serverless-first mindset make sense? Where is serverless much better compared to containers? Yeah, I can start on that one. So I guess what are the main benefits of, of using serverless compared to containers? And I think you get a lot of bang for your buck. You hear people say you get a lot of stuff for free. So in terms of resiliency, you're automatically in three availability zones and you don't have to do much of the underlying work to get there. And in terms of scalability, if you don't have these immense traffic predictions, then, hey, maybe you don't need to have uh, 1.2 million concurrent users that we were talking about previously. So, you know, in terms of scalability, you do get a lot for free. It might not go to an extremely high level of load, but often we're not having to deal with that amount of traffic. Um, and then in terms of just getting up and running, you know, I think the speed of deployment is is a whole lot quicker. 
you know you can just write your function, you can deploy it. You don't have to worry about a lot of the extra boilerplate surrounding your um, surrounding your functions. In terms of getting up and running operational savings, I guess you don't have to spin up EC2 instances, you don't have to set up a cluster, you don't have to manage a cluster, you don't have to configure auto-scaling groups, and yeah, a lot of the resiliency stuff you get for free, so you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, Sarah, what do you think? Everything that you just said, I have nothing to add. Okay, cool. And I think one last thing then to add. I think serverless really shines when you're looking at event-based models. So for example, maybe you have a Dynamo table and you want to process a stream of events that are coming out of changes to your to your data. Or maybe you you want to know what you want to trigger an event when something drops into S3 or you know maybe some other AWS service you want to integrate with. I think Lambda has got really good uh, tight integration with lots of other AWS services which would be a lot harder to achieve and you'd have to work a lot harder if you wanted to to use a container to kind of pull for those updates or somehow analyze changes going elsewhere in your AWS account. So that's the benefits. I guess what are some of the challenges um, when working with serverless? Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, so for me, from my perspective, one of the challenges working with serverless on a daily basis is mostly the failure handling and the resiliency patterns that, uh, as you already mentioned, can be benefits because they are offloaded to AWS to be taken care of. But sometimes we need more granular settings because of some constraints that we have in our own applications. That has happened to me multiple times. So sometimes those settings that were not possible to customize in serverless services were not always fitting the requirements of our application. Some of these limitations have been fixed recently. So for instance, some error handling happening during asynchronous invocations between a Lambda and another Lambda, which is very nice. So in general, the lack of possibility of customize certain behaviors, which is by definition part of the uh, serverless computing benefits, but in, in a way, taking away the possibility to customize certain behaviors, it can be a bit of a limit according to the application or the complexity or the constraints or what you have to ship in the cloud. This is my major pain point. So this is where the lack of controls around some of the underlying behaviors like retries and all of that, yep. that was where, okay, right. Yeah, I think what you mentioned about some of the async controls that are introduced at reInvent last year, that's really helped. And I really love the changes, especially for Kinesis, which I used to do so much work to get around the fact that you've got this retry and this success, which just drives me nuts. <laughs> so as a developer, Sarah, you're working with both containers and serverless. Do you find there's like a difference in terms of speed of delivery? Uh, when you're working on a project that's mostly working with Lambda versus a project where you have to do a lot of work with ECS and containers? I think it depends on your company. It depends how much work you invest as a company in scaffolding and boilerplates. So in the zone, we are, as backend engineers, we're fortunate enough to have a dedicated platform team that does a lot of the provisioning and the managing of infrastructure. So for instance, the ECS cluster and some of the auto-scaling policies, some of the security policies and all the services that are built around that, that is shaped by the platform team. So in that sense, if I were to build everything from scratch, absolutely it would take me way less time to ship something with serverless. But because our uh, company is doing pretty well in that sense, we are, as backend engineers, empowered to ship also containers very fast. So I'm very grateful to our platform team for that. And that helps, certainly. And how many people do we have in the platform team nowadays? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I wish there were more. 
think we, we support is good from a backend engineer perspective. We're already getting a lot, but uh, yeah, it's tough. It's a big company. That makes sense. But I guess in terms of from the sort of total cost of ownership perspective, you know, you're paying what 10, 15 people, pretty decent salary in London <laughs> to look after something that you just wouldn't have to do if you had a fully serverless environment, which of course may not meet all of the non-functional requirements that you have at a zone. You know, we've already covered that. Another thing that I want to touch on, I don't know if it's something that you guys have exposure to, is uh, what about the cost side of things? How are serverless components being used in terms of cost? Are they more cost efficient, less cost efficient compared to some of your containerized workloads? I think it really varies from team to team. I think I wouldn't want to go into too much specifics around our costs, but um, clearly if you've got some endpoints which aren't getting too much traffic, and they're running on Lambda, you're going to get some huge cost savings as opposed to if you were to, to have some long living containers, especially if they're being deployed to uh, multiple regions uh, and multiple availability zones. So a lot of stuff we do at DAZN is active-active is across four regions. And in each region, we want to have resiliency across availability zones. So suddenly, if you're going to deploy a container, if you just want to have at least one container, you're actually talking about 12 containers. And then if you're scaling that out to four environments, like dev, test, stage, and production, um, if you're not careful, you've quickly got 48 containers. And if this is just a relatively simple API that doesn't get a whole lot of traffic, obviously uh, having a Lambda function, which you only pay for what you use, um, is going to save you quite a lot of money. I think that the story probably changes as, as you scale up. If we have a, a service which requires a whole load more containers and receives a lot more traffic, then... I think it gets a bit more complicated, but I think certainly in the, in, in the use case where services have a lot less traffic, um, yeah, it's definitely cheaper using Lambda. Yeah, not every service at a zone runs at the zone scale, right? Yeah, exactly. This is something that uh, when I was talking to the guys at Netflix, that uh, they also said the same thing that you know, Netflix was really interested in Lambda once it takes a few more boxes for them because uh, not every service at Netflix it runs at Netflix scale. There's a couple of them like uh, you know the sign-in, all of that stuff that everybody hits along the way. But a lot of services are either highly cacheable or they just don't get that much traffic by comparison. Uh, it makes sense for you to have a split, you know, make a decision, a conscious decision based on where you should start to optimize for cost because of the amount of traffic those services that receive. Um, you touched on multi-region active and active there. So can you describe maybe some examples of how you would set up these systems? What do they look like from the sort of front to back in terms of the UI and all the way to say the databases? How do you make sure that it can be served active active from different regions? This is definitely Sarah's cup of tea. So, <laughs> Sarah, do you want to take this one? All right. Um, yeah, so ActiveActive, it's very complex. It's a pain point uh, in as developers because I think it's very hard to make it right and increases the complexity by a lot. But it is a necessity because of from a resiliency perspective, we need to guarantee that our services are going to be consumed by the user with minimum downtime. Certainly, 
Using serverless, like in case of DynamoDB, S3 buckets, API Gateway, or Lambda, it is easier to do active-active in that sense because there are certain features like sync of data from one region to another. It's something that you can achieve easily for data storage, which is in serverless. Otherwise, it's very hard. It's very hard. But uh, yeah, in general, we try to apply not only that, but also other residency patterns. At the very least, we deploy in two regions. So we apply failover, we have a active passive for anything that is not critical on the critical path, let's say. So at least we have an active region that gets all the traffic and otherwise we fail over the, the shadow region. But in general, for everything like sign up, playback and payment system, yeah, we deploy in four regions. And yeah, it takes a lot of time and testing. I'll also add to that and say that we make quite heavy use of, of Dynamo global tables yeah. in terms of replication across regions. Um, yeah, a, a lot of teams are using uh, using global tables, and it's been a, a really big uh, time saver. And with global tables, I remember a few teams were also using DynamoDB streams from global tables and running into some really interesting edge cases, uh, which are not that well documented. Do you guys want to talk maybe about some of that pain point around using global tables with uh, maybe DynamoDB streams? I can't remember exactly which edge cases you're referring to. Um, I, I know there are teams who have global tables set up and have streams then taking off uh, changes and putting them into like a, a history table, for example, where we can then store a whole, a whole bunch of uh, effectively like an audit log of all changes that have occurred to the main data. Yeah. I, I, can you enlighten us? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Tom that was running into this. So when you have an update to your local table gets uh, replicated to other regions tables you get the same event getting triggered in every single region so essentially one update you're going to receive four events on the stream oh, yeah. and then you have to look at this very specific key in the payload to figure out whether or not did update come from the local it did update come from uh, another region somewhere else to figure out which one you should process rather than trying to process same event four times yeah, I, I, I recall that because you get some extra um, attributes added to your to your data, right? And then from yeah. that you can derive whether it's an update event or whether a, whether it's occurred in the local region. You have to kind of figure out backwards whether or not you should process it or you should leave it to the other region where the actual event occurred if you want to keep the changes in the regions uh, and not have the same kind of audit log in every region, if you like. Yeah, I was talking with Tom through that and... Um... I think it wasn't even documented. <laughs> it was just something that he figured out by looking at the payload and experimenting a little bit and see which key maps to which scenario. And it wasn't even mentioned in the documentation. So there's like one line of documentation in like 50 or 500 pages of documentation for DynamoDB. Yeah. I uh, yeah sometimes I find the documentation in AWS a bit not easy to browse or yeah one of the pain points with the documentation is that sometimes I think that failure scenarios or error handling should be highlighted more to help developers troubleshooting because everything can happen and things fail and we need to be empowered as a developer to be able to capture these scenarios and to handle them, uh, foresee them if possible, but otherwise troubleshooting them. And uh, I think uh, we can make an extra step. Uh, there is margin of improvement in terms of how the AWS documentation shows these scenarios in their documentation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally, I can't, I couldn't agree more. Uh, <laughs> I've spent so many hours just <laughs> you know, going through the documentation, trying to find that one line 
<laughs> that explains why I'm seeing some weird behavior. <laughs> so AWS documentations need to be better. There's some pain points around uh, error handling scenarios. Are there anything else that you find challenging when you're working with Lambda, working with AWS, anything that AWS can do better? I think from my perspective, you know, some of the pages in the management console could be a whole lot better. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. To, to, to give it AWS some credit, um, I think the API Gateway One has recently uh, got a bit of a uh, facelift. Um, <laughs> it was very frustrating up until, until recently. Um, but they're improving, so oh, yeah. got to give there, them credit. There is the one from the parameter store, which is oof, so, so tough to use. But again, in theory, you should be creating your infra with tools such as CloudFormation or Terraform or the CLI. But again, sometimes you just want to get familiar with things and you need to have that visual feedback to understand what's going on, especially when you troubleshoot stuff or you're not really sure or you're just experimenting or playing around. So in that sense, the dashboard is very helpful to get familiar with a specific service or a specific context or scenario. So... Yeah, I understand that we should not prioritize the dashboard or the web console. But again, there is margin of improvement. And to kind of go back to the, the documentation improvements that we were talking about, I think this is one thing AWS could do a bit better. It's helping hold people's hand through the adoption of serverless. Because I think, you know, it's very easy to get something out of the door quick and to spin up a new serverless stack. I think there's just lots of uh, kind of hidden decisions that if you're not careful, they might bite you. There's a bit of like a hidden learning curve. So for example, would you want to use, you know, ALB versus an API gateway? You know, how much memory do you need to give each of the functions and what impact will that have on either cost or performance? H how should I deploy my functions? You know, uh, do I need provisions concurrency? What are the account limits that I need to watch out for? What kind of alerts should I really have? So I, I think there's, there's a whole lot of like hidden complexity that I think yeah, if you're not careful coming into serverless uh, and just using everything straight away, there, there are a few gotchas you've got to watch out for. So I wonder if just educating users could be a bit better. Yeah, I agree with that. Funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I was talking to the guys from DVOA in Swansea on another episode of this podcast. The guys said exactly the same thing. I think Matt Lewis, uh, he's a chief architect over there, said that AWS is so unopinionated when it comes to what customers do. They almost just give you this huge menu of different things you can choose from without really telling you that which one is good when. So almost like just, hey, here's a menu, order whatever you like. But you know what? If you're looking for losing weight, maybe order some salad. Don't order Big Mac. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't offer any opinion around when you should be using API Gateway versus ALBs. Those decision points are not obvious. And I guess uh, they are kind of just keeping me in the job <laughs> because people come to me for this kind of advice. That's the thing. If you go into AWS, it really is an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? You have you have so much to choose from. And yeah, I guess it's kind of down to, to leadership within organizations to set up guardrails and to you know come up with well-trodden paths to, to, to keep people doing the right thing. Yep, yep. And uh, they shouldn't have to do that themselves. Uh, some of that guidance should be coming from AWS uh, for sure. And Sarah, you mentioned earlier, kind of just briefly in passing, using serverless and Terraform together. How do you guys choose when to use Terraform versus CloudFormation or serverless framework? I think it's not exactly a choice as in we widely adopted Terraform eventually as a tool to ship our services in the cloud. 
because we work in microservices and each team has space to choose the tooling that they want within limits. So I think there was like a, just a wide adoption of Terraform also because it was fostered by the platform team. But Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong in this. I think it was a recommendation from our platform team mostly, but I think it's also just the tool that most people are comfortable with. Yeah. Um, because if a lot of teams are having to, to deploy containers anywhere or having to create dashboards or alarms or other bits of infrastructure, maybe outside of AWS, then, you know, using HCL and Terraform and staying within your kind of that, te- that Terraform bubble is a bit more comfortable for people and they don't have to use multiple tools at the same time. That's probably the main reason. That's a good point. Yeah, I forgot to mention. Yes, certainly Terraform has the added value of having multiple providers. So for instance, we can build our dashboards relying on the new Relic provider. So everything can be is infrastructure as code. So we can build our dashboard alerts, everything related to observability and monitoring using Terraform. So we can also version control it. And that is uh, New Relic is an example, but the same is for our secrets management in Vault, or it can be Datadog, it can be PagerDuty. So that's really a great benefit to be able to control this in your code and to be responsible for it. But I guess it's not without issues because Terraform is very uh, unopinionated, right? It will let you do whatever you want because it's just the AWS APIs on the other side of it. I think we've run into to various issues when, when trying to use Terraform, especially around uh, updating multiple lambdas concurrently. Um, I think there are some API limits where you can't update multiple lambdas at the same time and we've had to daisy chain using depends on in our terraform so that you deploy one at a time and you sequence all the the rollout i think getting more advanced uh, deployment mechanisms like uh, blue green deployments or canary deployments using terraform has has been quite challenging and yeah you may wish to look at other tools if trying to achieve that which you know we are so if you're doing most of these stuff with Lambda, a lot of the teams in London, at least, uh, they are using server framework instead of uh, Terraform because it just makes life so much easier, especially when you're working with API Gateway. Uh, and I do remember that daisy chaining uh, with uh, Terraform and Lambda when you got quite a few functions in the in the project. That is not fun. No, it's not ideal. Is there anything that you'd like to tell the listeners before we go? Maybe the zone is hiring. Yeah, definitely. So we are hiring. Um, if you want to help us shape the future of sport, uh, check out the open roles we have at jobs.design.com. And if you're interested in learning more about what we get up to, go to engineering.design.com, where we have a bunch of blog posts going into more technical detail about some of the challenges that we've overcome. Cool. I'll put those uh, in the show notes for everyone who's looking for information about the zone. And uh, also, the zone is uh, spread across multiple development centers. I guess you're hiring in Amsterdam and London. Is that right? Yeah, we have development centers in, in, in London, Amsterdam, Leeds, and Katowice. Not sure exactly where we're hiring right now, but check out the website. We've got all of our open roles there. Okay, that's great. And I want to thank you guys for joining us. Uh, and before I let you go, uh, how can people find you guys on the internet? So if you want to get in touch with me, search Daniel Wright on LinkedIn, or I'm D-A-L-W-R on Twitter. With me instead, you can yeah find me on Twitter under the nickname Sarutule. Or, yeah, on LinkedIn under the name Sara Gerion. Okay, I'll make sure I'll put those into the show notes as well. Um, so, again, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Hope to see you around at the Zone office soon. Yeah, cheers, Jan. Yes. Take it easy, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. 
So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. Thank you guys very much for joining us on this conversation with Daniel Wright and Sarah Gerion at The Zone. To access the show notes and the transcript, please go to realworldserverless.com and I'll see you guys same time next week. Take care for now.